0: I give myself the ability to make intermediate goals for painting so that when I complete each level, I am able to feel accomplished and I have a finite time and finite number of iterations I can do before I can deliver a painting as a product.
1: to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today I'm speaking with an urban sketcher whose work I have admired for a long time. She makes amazing watercolors and draws and paints, not only on location, but also out of her own garage studio. Uma works with both brush and stylus. Her brush strokes look effortless, and she conveys a lot of meaning without getting overwhelmed by details. She works as an engineer in Silicon Valley So I wonder how she finds the time to paint so much. I'm really fascinated by people who choose to give their precious leisure time to such artistic pursuits. Join me in learning the role that art plays in her life and how Uma paints like an engineer. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the show, Uma. I'm very happy to have you here.
0: I'm so honored to
1: be here. There are two big questions on which today's conversation is based for me. And I think it would be really nice if we start with the first one right off the bat. So my first big question for you is, what does it mean to paint like an engineer?
0: So, um, yeah, this was meant to This was a tag a friend of mine and I came up with to have exactly this discussion, to provoke. And the question arises from people who ask me about this is because it makes them uncomfortable. We don't think engineers can assess beauty in general. And we definitely don't think if we say, I engineer like an artist, that would be a serious comment, right? So the resistance that I'm trying to display by putting up this label is against being cookie cut into a personality because of choice of profession. It also comes from a personal stigma I've faced as a female engineer where I'm seen less intense or less committed to engineering because I paint. So I want people to be aware that engineers can paint and I want artists to know that Well, I want artists to know that engineers can paint, and I want engineers to know that even if I paint, I still can engineer well. Um, I wanted to stress to the world that there is cross-pollination of strengths that happens when you allow one habit to inform the other. Uh, Just like playing soccer builds in people a skill to manage teams, to understand people's skills and leveraging of people's skills. So does painting, even if it's a solo activity. So that's what's giving it back to the engineers. But what does it mean to paint like an engineer? Paint like an engineer is um, where I can make, I give myself the ability to make intermediate goals for painting so that when I complete each level, I am able to feel accomplished. Um, I know that I'm my own customer when it comes to painting and I have a finite time and finite number of iterations I can do before I can deliver a painting as a product. So that, so I don't go about an infinite loop (laughs)
1: Uh, in painting. You have to set goals so that you know what you are iterating towards.
0: Right, right, right. Exactly, and um, it also helps me dissect things very... Uh, I dissect it like a hardware bug. Exactly. When you find when you find a bug in engineering, you never say, you say the product is bad, it doesn't work for me. You never say your whole engineering team is asinine, right? But as painters, we often say, oh, the whole, a failed painting is like a reflection of you. I don't get into that more. <laughs> it is just a failed painting i'll see what the failures are put in process to fix that and push next iteration
1: so in this sense is it fair to say paint like an engineer is about it's about a habit that you exercise over over days and weeks and months and years at your craft and not necessarily something to think about painting to painting
0: absolutely absolutely and yeah, it's like a data-driven. I mean, it's not unemotionless, but it's a data-driven habit. It's long-term, um, and also provokes a question and a dialogue among artists who have seen other artists from other fields. But those fields are usually architecture, landscape. But there's no hardcore hardware engineer, and they kind of feel that engineering or technology is a bane, is a problem right now in the world, right? At least in Silicon Valley, it's creating disparity between poor and uh, rich and art and non-arts. But that's not, I'm saying, no, no, no. We are few of us, we really like to cross-pollinate.
1: What's very interesting about this is how you approach then the way you go about learning and improving your art. And it's informed so deeply by your own arc as a person and your education and your career. Like I know that you work in Silicon Valley. And I have a vague idea that your work also directly involves silicon in some way, perhaps
0: absolutely which is a yeah.
1: excellent coincidence <laughs> so can you t- Can you tell me how how did art come into the middle of your life when did it when did it arrive, and where did you find it?
0: So I can't really pinpoint to the causation of art, um, but you have a similar background as me what i mean by not personal background but yeah, all of us are made by some collective backgrounds too right growing up middle class in a certain time in a certain country gives you certain values and certain perspective right art was not a viable option you know, as far as professional professions went um, uh, so i knew i could paint I knew, does that happen to you? Like, even if you have not worked hard at something, inherently, you know, you can do something.
1: I think it's uh, like when you're very young, I think a lot of it is, we are not so results driven, but we are very process driven. I think when we're very young, we're so excited by how much we enjoy something and how, whether it, you know, whether it looks as good as somebody else's work, whether it's as good as this or that, that's so secondary because we're just taking so much joy in doing it, right?
0: Right, right. That's a very good. That's a very good point. The joy of yeah, doing something. Um, so so the the story is this. So I I grew up in India. And I grew up in my house was one room. Okay, so the living room, dining room, bedroom was one room, and um, I started going and painting out with commercial artists when I was fifteen, sixteen years old, and these were professional students of commercial art, actually. And they just took me in. And what I realized was they always painted outside because everybody came from small houses, okay? (laughs) Uh, And we used to paint in very busy roads, in the middle of roads and parks. So to be in the middle of chaos, but to be able to have a zen, a calm inside your mind while you're painting I didn't realize it that time, but that was a superpower that I could protect my own space. So that is a drug, actually. That's a drug that you get that, Oh my God, I have this superpower. There can be chaos everywhere, but I could be focusing on one thing and I'll be enjoying it. Uh, and as happened, as it happened, probably, did it happen to you that you altered when you were a kid? And then life says you have to get be an engineer or a doctor. And I love my engineering, okay? But it meant complete sacrifice of the arts.
1: <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. I think it's just, I don't think it was very explicitly pushed on me in any way. But I just absorbed it from my surroundings that this is the good things to do now. These are the things that you uh, stop paying attention to and then the whole becoming an engineer and how that is the responsible thing to do etc cetera, etc cetera. and also i was i've always been motivated by a lot of curiosity and simply like i said before like just the joy of being able to do things so i happened and maybe this is a little bit my curse as well as a blessing i just happened to be naturally also good at science and i happened to be good at my studies and i ha- uh, happened to be interested in those things like finding out things
0: Absolutely, exactly. So, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm naturally inclined to science. I like mathematics. I like the beauty of it. And I'm good at my studies.
1: So, so you became an engineer. What kind, of, what kind of studies did you do?
0: I'm actually an instrumentation engineer by, profi- uh, by undergrad. Um, and that's because I imagine myself working in factories and designing big processes. Um, and then I came to Stanford to do, Stanford doesn't have instrumentation, USA doesn't have instrumentation, process and control. And I sat in on one circuits class and I thought, this is elegance. I <laughs> uh, went down that ra- rabbit hole after I finished my master's at Stanford and uh, But that, I mean, I still love it. I think it's very elegant. And there is so much common between art and engineering, the elegance in solutions, the elegance in how we come up with beautiful things.
1: I think it's uh, once you can speak, so to say, you can speak the language of mathematics, then you start to be able to see that kind of beauty and elegance, as you say it but if you don't then of course i mean you're just uh, it's just a foreign language so you there's it becomes difficult to communicate to people who are not versed in it about what that elegance exactly feels like
0: you're absolutely right there's something about aptitude you could get all the degrees you wanted but if you if you're not inclined to enjoy it, the way of communication and looking at it then it's going to be hard
1: in a way you've been doing urban sketching right from your teens because you were doing this in Pune.
0: Right, and I stopped uh, when I started going to my engineering college and my masters. Uh, It was until 2009, I wasn't doing art as much. Uh, I had a two-year-old son, my oldest son, and I realized, this is true, people find it funny, but I thought I was becoming a really bitter person, and I had to do something to become better I had to indulge in some selfish activity so I could satisfy satisfy me and if I was happy I would be a better parent that was the main motive I was really becoming evil I was just angry bitter angry at the world all the time um, but I did not know it stemmed from not having something to do for myself um And something that started as a Thursday activity in between the cars. So between the cars, so we have a a garage and there are two cars parked. And in between the cars, there is space and nobody sees me. And there was, so what I want to show is not only was I mentally afraid to show that I paint, but physically I had to shroud my hobby for a long time. So it's away from everybody. And there was nobody picking on me. But after everybody slept, I knew there were no opinions to be cast. I had done my work. I had been a responsible citizen for the day. (laughs) This is a
1: mountain of guilt that we carry as Indian people.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. And as a mother, too, if I choose painting over fixing yet another organic meal for my child the next day... (laughs) And then I found Flickr and Flickr became, see as engineers, our entire community of friends are all engineers. <laughs> so you have to build a community of artists to support or to see your pain and see your journey. And Flickr was an ex- exciting thing because Flickr democratized the commenting of on art, right? Anybody could post at their convenience and anybody could encourage at their convenience which definitely enabled people like me to get feedback and just to keep at it.
1: That's so interesting because, you know, when I was, uh, when I started to draw again, I started when I gave it up as a child and then I'm in my final year of engineering. I started again in the form of making stick figure comics, just because I had so much time and I had always loved small panel, three panel, four panel comics. So I started doing that. And again, like the real reinforcement I got was when I started to share it online. I started to find these communities of people who do these kind of things. And just those online communities, people you don't meet for years and years, or maybe never, you never meet them. You just fall out of touch later even. But these people with whom you can share your writing and, you, and the days of the early internet, you know, when yes. everybody was so excited. Like, I think there was a lot more sincerity because everything was so new. And it was not yet so widely accessible. So if you found some blog, which was about writing, it would usually very earnestly be about writing. And the person would be very sincere and very dedicated to this thing because there's no money here, right? There was no money in the internet back in the day. So if you're doing it, you really, really just want to do this. Right. So these communities are very real communities that I I kind of also grew through.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, And I was so scared of everything online when I joined. I even had a pseudonym uh, in fact, last Thursday, I think I changed my pseudonym on Flickr to my real
1: name so uh, tell me about how how urban sketching came to you and how did how did you become an urban sketcher then?
0: right, so both Flickr and the the Flickr community, which made it okay to sketch anywhere not just like pretty things right just released it gave you a license to do anything um, anything that doesn't hurt people and it also gave you uh, a community which enjoyed that so you want that enjoyment and you want even if I say the joy of painting is in the creation but right after I want to share it. I do want to share it and I want to be in an echo chamber frankly sometimes I do want to be in an echo chamber Um, so uh, so that was great also urban sketching came out of necessity because uh, that was my getaway from the family I needed (laughs) to go (laughs) Uh, but it also started in India right so when I started this doing it as a teen it was not called urban sketching there was a a cultural group in India called Sanskar Bharti uh, which I was a part of and they actually forced, not forced but they encouraged me to have um, classes for young children so I started teaching young children back in the day I'd actually forgotten this until I started thinking about it when I was thinking about the questions you raised uh, so then urban sketching happened and I started get, getting better at it after Flickr after keeping up the practice and my child, when he, my second child, when he turned four, then I, and it was very planned. In 2012, he was only, um, or 2014, he was only two years old. I had planned it that 2014, I would take my first workshop. I would take a string. It would end in 2015, 2016. I'm going to Urban Sketchers Symposium and exactly that.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to think about how, like going back to when you say paint like an engineer, and I see that you're exploring urban sketching and you also do so much other work on canvases like large watercolors. Uh, let's, let's break down the process of how you paint like an engineer iteratively and then grow and learn your skills. Could you explain how, how your feedback loop, how, how you've designed this, this system?
0: Everything starts with curiosity. Everything has to feed that demon inside you. I call it a demon, but I really don't mean it in an ill fashion. All I meant to say it's it's a burning desire that you would rather be doing. You rather be, if okay if you rather be caught dead doing that thing, that's your demon. So curiosity and ability to be to be inspired. So sometimes I will see something and I know I want to capture it. And when I say see something, I've been seeing since 2013. I've been logging my reference pictures, which I cannot paint even now because I don't have the skills, but I'm working to get to it. Um, And I realize, so I'm ambitious in that. And I say, I want to paint X. And I realize, do I have the skills to paint X? I do not have skills to paint X. (laughs) Okay, so then break it down. What all do I not have? So it's it's just like breaking down specifications of a product to micro architecture. <laughs> if it is a five foot by a five foot painting, have I even painted two point five by two point five? Okay, do I have the brushes? So there is equipment, there is skill, there is stamina. So I actually make a plan of achieving those things piecemeal.
1: Uh, I'm looking at your this the house of cards analogy that you've used to illustrate the cycle of practice and what i see is that we build through through practicing the same kinds of things or approaching challenges in the same way we kind of improve our skills at solving certain problems whether we know how to hold a brush let's say whether we know how it what it does when we do a certain thing let's say and then you have this interesting step which, which, is, a, which is not an actual physical technical practice but what you call as a mental practice which is to connect the dots in your head and connecting skills to each other. What, what do you mean by this?
0: Let me ask you, let me answer with a question. Have you picked up a new medium in the last one year?
1: Um, no, no, probably not.
0: Okay, let me ask in the other way. When you picked a different medium did you start at base 0 or did you start at base 10 level 10 directly and let's say there are 100 levels to go
1: right i i think so what ha- one big change i made was when i moved from digit i actually moved from digital to getting more uh, with traditional work so for me the ipad came almost much before the fountain pens and what happened was then that i don't think i start it would be fair to say that i started at 0 but the pro- some of the things that I learned from working with the iPad helped me to approach the traditional media with more confidence.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so the translation is sometimes just technical. For example, on an iPad, if you are putting things on layers on for on lower layers so that the thing appears farther away, with your ink nave, it just Maybe if ink, you cannot change the value of your line, it probably translates to the width of your line. Things that far away are done with the backside of your neighbor or the side, right? This you did not have to learn through trial and error. Right. This gem of information that was in the back of your head that things far away need to be emphasized less. That's the connection. Uh, okay. The concept remains the same. So I have picked up oil and I, though... I don't feel hindered at all. I feel, yeah, throw me an, an oil. I'm used to watercolors, but I understand the concept of painting. I understand the concept of harmony. I understand the concept of composition.
1: So you've, you've spoken to, like you've taught so much and you've taught a lot of urban sketching. You've taught a lot of painting to people. Do you find this kind of building, this kind of feedback loop? Is it, is it common or do you think people, are, people struggle with this idea of repeating, uh, repeating things or building upon skills over time?
0: I think people in a community are more used to having this feedback loop. I think being in a community strengthens your muscle of listening. So a good community encourages that, which is what the Flickr groups did. And this is something I actually, I'm glad you talked about teaching. This is what I show by example in my workshops that everybody gets to speak their painting and get feedback what if people enjoy it you know i i think this is what it is people i have not asked this but the truth is giving equal dignity people enjoy that
1: yeah right
0: just feeling heard whatever level you are it reduces that feeling of competition they are not meeting somebody else's mark and I also feel relieved by that because in a class, I might be the instructor, but I'm not the know-all. So I'm open to saying that you teach me too, or I will get back to you. And that just takes away the weight. It's Allowing people to do what they want to do and then listening to their paper, looking at the results. The the results are right in front of you. And if you ignore them, then... Mm -hmm.
1: Do you think that maybe some of how we study science and how we study engineering, because we study about how to, how to reach to a proof, how to reach to a solution after breaking things down, having algorithms, having flowcharts to, uh, to deconstruct a complex system. So for example, I studied in my master's degree, I studied control engineering, and that was all about this thing called black box identification. Which is that if you have a system and you don't know how it works and you don't know what are the parts that are uh, making doing different jobs to give you the output it's giving you, how do you how do you poke it in different ways to see what could it how could it be working and how you identify those different elements and then you can separately uh, perturb, disturb, excite, stimulate those different elements and kind of understand what makes them tick and what makes them improve.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head for a couple of many, for three things. Okay. One, the engineering you talk about that has been taught in USA has been much more research oriented. When I say research oriented, it feeds the curiosity. It believes that feeding that curiosity and poking will bring you to a good answer. It gives you, the student, some dignity that, hey, you go. I won't force feed you the solution. Go find out. And there is there is good in you doing that find out because if you come up with a poor solution, I have a better one. But if you come, there is a likelihood of you coming with a better solution, which is where the dignity lies. But I really feel, so the catch 22 lies here. When I was growing up in India, I was taught, I don't think I was research minded. I was taught something and I had to follow through. There is power in process of dissecting things. Yes, I agree. But it was meant to conform. And the thing that hurts us most is engineers are always told they are unbiased because they only believe data. Because we believe only in data and evidence. Lack of data is construed as contrary data.
1: Right, right. That's a very good point.
0: So there are three flavors of data. There is... Contrary data, there is assertive data, and there is lack of data. So when the first male engineer was going to fly a plane, nobody was saying, oh, I've never seen men fly, so don't fly. But if a woman wants to do something, it's like, oh, but I've never seen it, so I won't trust her leadership. So why I bring this up right now is when you said we are allowed to dissect, I say, yes, we are allowed to dissect only if you have come through an engineering education where research was uh, prized, research was rewarded like yours seemed to have. I did not have that mental capability. So I did not know I was conditioned not to think outside the box.
1: Yeah, that's very true. It's it's a training of another kind and you can confuse what you see as all of reality in a way. I think I think it's a little close to something I read. It's called presentism. And presentism is when you believe that the way things are right now are the only way they could have been and the only way that they have always been before as well. So a lot of people attribute this to to gender roles, for example, that if gender roles are this way after thousands of years, it's evidently because this is the only way they can be. So And when somebody is fighting for some kind of equality on any front, then the idea is that they are trying to outrage against what is normal and what is the way things have always been and there is no point arguing certain certain rules or certain you know certain things are set in stone
0: and you yourself if i may say so must have faced the reverse
1: what is the reverse bias
0: so as a comic artist do you feel you are valued similarly in usa and india
1: Oh, no, it's very different. It's worlds apart. And uh, it has to, I'm also thinking about the same sort of things as you mentioned them, like, so what I'm thinking is that in, we have, a. I feel like in India, we have a very different approach to art. So I come from a very artistic family, by the way, in the sense that they're not artists, but they are artisans. So my mother's side of the family is from Rajasthan. And she's one of five sisters, and all of them are into some kind of crafts as part of their career and business so they make clothes they make various other handicrafts and they sell them uh, professionally so there's a lot there's a very different approach then what they what they think about when they think about art a lot of it is very anonymous and a lot of it is while it is still creative and individual inspiration it does not uh like it's not art for art's sake. That's a very simple way to put it. So the idea of what an artist and how that is different from an artisan is this conflict that I'm always fighting in my own head.
0: Utility and function is so big in India. What does it do? And I understand when there is 1 billion people and you there is a high percentage of poor people, what is your art doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. So when I came to the US, it was very amazing to me how easy it was to sell art. And not only was it easy to sell art, it was easy to sell art at your choice of price. You could quote your uh, a number to somebody and they would respect it. If you could quote it uh, before you did some kind of work, like if I, when I started doing my first commissions, I realized I could quote a number and they would not doubt my number, but then they would expect something proportional from me. They would trust me to deliver on that number. And that kind of puts the responsibility back on you to live up like nobody is kind of screwing the other person out. We are uh, we don't expect to be cheated out in any way, which is, I think, part of what the uh, mistrust around artists and art is in India. We don't really see why I should pay this money for this thing and how it individually gives that value to my life. And here I found a very enabling environment. On two or three occasions, I've actually been paid more than I'd asked for. And they told me that you have, you undercharged and we should give you more money. So here it is. And I was just blown away by that. I got, I got like a large commission last year, my largest last last year, by somebody who didn't put any stipulations on what the output should be like. They simply said, I want you to do what you do best and just give me the final thing at the end. And that was, it's so freeing, but it's also like an enormous responsibility now. And that trust is a big responsibility. And just rising to it is the whole process of how, like I became a better artist and trying to meet that level of trust.
0: Wonderfully said, wonderfully said, exactly, exactly. The onus was on you to meet your own mark. Absolutely. Oh, very well said. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Uh, Sure. I I kind of got it first in my life through engineering. When I went for my master's degree, I was in the Netherlands and I was at the TU Delft and the first time that my professor sat me down after after an assignment and he asked me what I thought the answer was and he just listened to me, was just this crazy experience and I told him what I thought the answer was and how I was going to go about solving that assignment. And he didn't contradict me or tell me anything. He just said, yes, this sounds interesting. That sounds valid. Okay, why don't you find out more about it? And just that process of feeling heard and feeling like as if what I said is possibly worth something, that was like the responsibility that he then set on me that henceforth, what you say better be worth something because I'm going to treat it like that.
0: Yes, it it is very empowering to be heard. and I use the word equal dignity, but I think it's true. When people respect you, you feel like putting your best foot forward and it brings out the best in you.
1: So uh, coming back to uh, our uh, like your journey as an urban sketcher, I have my second big question for you now. And this is about digital art. Digital art came to you a little bit after you started working in traditional art forms already. You were already painting, like as I now know, as a teenager, and then you later picked up more painting, but all of that was traditional. And relatively recently, you have made this these uh, forays with the iPad. So I want to know how the, the like how it felt for you to move to the iPad. Were you hesitant about it initially, and for what kind of reasons?
0: Um, I was hesitant, if at all, only because the stylus did not respond as I had hoped. Uh, you touched upon the joy of creating. I already had, I already knew because of traditional art, the level of joy and the level of um, hurdles I will accept before I will stick to something. And every time the iPad and its pencil came out, I would actually visit a store and try out drawing something on it. And it didn't respond. In April 2017, I walked into an iPad. Apple store and the pencil responded to my pressure and I was like, this is it. This is it. I walked out thousand burgers (laughs) with an iPad mini. Um, What had been interesting and very attractive was work of other people and the kind of effects they got and the kind of effects they got without being tethered to a large machine, a large Wacom tablet, right? This is something that, I do not have real estate in California and I didn't have the time real estate also. So I needed something to fit the interstitial spaces of my life.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's a, that's a very v- nice way to put it because I often, I tell people that urban sketching takes is so beautiful because it can take so little of your time. And you know that I just, whatever is in front of me is what I can draw. These are the things I see. This looks kind of interesting and I have only five minutes before my next meeting starts.
0: Right? And exactly about meetings, because it's a digital portable medium, and it has great note-taking skills, I'm more likely to be found with an iPad than a paper and pencil. So it makes sense to lower the barriers to entry. If you want a new habit, you've got to lower the barrier to entry to that habit, right?
1: Exactly right.
0: And watercolors is my first love, okay? There is a sexy, sex appeal with watercolors that iPad doesn't. But... I cannot take watercolors to bed.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not that kind of sex appeal.
0: <laughs> well, but I can take the iPad At 10 p.m. I'm super tired. The world is about to end. I have five minutes. The iPad allows me.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. One more drawing.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so, Uh, This is like a really big benefit, right? Like just that completely destroying that barrier to can I draw right now in this moment? How How did the digital medium help you to improve as an urban sketcher?
0: Okay, so digital medium itself did not improve urban sketching. If I had been painting in some other medium also as consistently, it would have improved urban sketching. Digital medium gave me something that watercolors wouldn't. It gives me easy way to add textures. Sometimes that's faster than watercolors, right? I don't have to wait for things to dry. I am unable to put a yellow pigment on a blue pigment in watercolor. If I have a blue, right? So that, so even though I have worked around my ways, sometimes errors happen. So what digital does is gives me one more chance to fix things that watercolors don't. Um, so especially when traveling, that's important. And I'll tell you why, because I draw a lot of inspiration from far away, but I want to also remember the flavor that inspiration left in my mouth. So if I do a bad thumbnail, I'm more than likely not to <laughs> pursue it further. So but the digital lets me keep on fixing it, fixing it, fixing it. Because with paper pencil you can't go after after your uh, ruin your paper right so digital medium does that it enables my future paintings it enables me to draw more inspiration from one place than i would have with watercolors.
1: yeah it, it's a it's a very nice it's like a lab basically in a way that you can have a virtual experience you can like you mentioned the yellow with the blue like i'm also thinking it's such a like for someone like me i'm uh, i'm i consider myself very poor at things like color theory and intuitively understanding what works but the digital medium lets me make those mistakes and try and see things without that cost attached to them of now it's done now you just have to do all of that work all over again i can just make a new layer and add something doesn't look nice okay forget about this never try it again definitely never try it with actual watercolors it's a lot of those mistakes get uh, you know quickly sorted out
0: um and uh, there's a slickness to your produced work that traditional media looks slick so like oil paintings look slicker somehow watercolors when photographed cannot look as good as they look in real life watercolor is a transparent medium therefore it relies on light going across hitting the back of the paper coming out and it glows that you lose in a photo so it it always looks a little dull And you will know this if you've looked at magazines and then you happen to see the real painting in real life and you're like, this felt, I feel this piece more. Whereas in digital, it conveys what you see is what you get. (laughs) So that is very attractive.
1: So uh, do you, when, when, you, when, you tre- when you teach people urban sketching, painting, etc., do you meet a lot of people who have difficulty doing this switch from, you know, maybe they are tra- formally trained even and they have enjoyed one medium for very, very long. How, how, do, you, how do you get them to try something, a, a different medium? What do you say to them?
0: It's a very good question. I've realized that people can't paint with Procreate. They feel they have to draw and somehow be very conformed and regular, like painting is impossible. I've found that being um, pedantic actually helps at the, for the early adoptee, uh, adopter actually, um, which means they do they just follow me in painting a certain picture, which is not the way I teach watercolor painting. But for some things that also need technical skill and switching your brain to look, think of layers as glazes in watercolor, (laughs) that helps to just follow me as painting a nature scape or a landscape. And it really helps to have a landscape because then they can think they can take the iPad outside to do plein air. And where one other thing it helps is somebody has already done a painting, I can quickly take a picture and edit it for them to prove to them not prove but to show exactly what i'm saying graphically because words are something and then interpretation of the words by the listener is another layer right so i take that away by just showing them what exactly i meant
1: Uh uh-huh do do you also use the time-lapse videos in in how you you know the, the the ones that show you the brush work over time do you use them in any way in communicating
0: uh, actually, that's a good uh, good point. No, I have not used that to communicate for my watercolor class. No, I have not. And I, you put up these videos just for fun. What do you use them for?
1: Right. Well, firstly, what I've found is that for people that I do commissions for, it's very entertaining for them to see this. It doesn't cost me anything to make it. It's just I just have to output it. And they enjoy it and they feel closer to the work. And it adds value to the work that I'm doing for them. This is another offering that I have for them. Uh, Secondly though, um, I've been following some people on Instagram who talk about uh, how they they, uh, look at the time-lapse video and what they do is, uh, periodically in a very long, complex work, so something that takes six, seven hours, at different points of time, they will watch the time-lapse video themselves just to kind of see what decisions they're taking. So I'm thinking because when you're working in a traditional medium, so suppose I'm working with ink and watercolor, the way that I will start things and the way that I will proceed until the end is very is a very standard step by step process. I will usually not do ink before the watercolor. The watercolor will come first on the paper. Maybe I'll put some pencil lines, and after that only we'll do the ink. So a lot of those decisions are that 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 uh, that process is fixed. But when I'm doing watercolors, uh, when I'm doing digital work, I'm con- I'm confronted with so many choices and so many possible looks that are right there. You know, click of a button, I can change the look again that I'm, I'm going back and forth a lot more. And I'm going back to my line work and I'm deciding I don't want to work with my line work anymore. I want to work first with colors, then I want to bring in lines and reverse and then all these decisions keep coming in. So that, that makes it very interesting, but also... When, when you see it in the video, it teaches you kind of your, your decision-making steps. And I want to, I, so one of my questions actually to you was going to be, if you've ever thought about this, do you think that your algorithm that you follow is different for traditional work versus digital work?
0: I might draw differently. I, might, I paint very similarly digitally, but when I'm drawing, I know my wrist can't smudge anything. So I start drawing what is most attractive, whereas in real life, I would draw from top to bottom so I don't smudge. Uh-huh. So,
1: <laughs> you, there's one more thing you've, I, I think I saw you do recently, which was very interesting to me, is you were drawing without uh, zooming in at any point. Do you usually uh, otherwise zoom at all into the page or is this something you normally do this way?
0: No, I don't. I normally don't.
1: You normally do not zoom into the paper at all no, that's no. that's really fascinating i should i should say because i think that's one of the most big things that i do with my ipad and now i find myself sometimes when i'm switching media too quickly i find myself doing the pinch zoom thing on actual paper also and then i wonder why it's not working and then it hits me
0: i've done that but just because i'm used to looking at instagram feed and then looking uh-huh. i'll be uh-huh. doing it on my laptop and it's like not working. Hey, this is not nothing to do with what we're saying right now, but I felt this need to disclaim something about uh, Indian education. And the reason uh, I felt that is it's, it's not all bad, right? The stifling and all, it comes from the fact that there were such less jobs and a large population that the intent of the stifling, the intent of cookie cutting, intent of people becoming engineers and lawyers was The intent of parents wanting their children to do that was because they wanted them secure, more secure than they thought they were. Uh, So the intent was good, but when the intent got lapped up to the point where they wouldn't think for themselves and they they saw that the children weren't enjoying, that's where the stifling started happening.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's very true.
0: And also where they made their choices of spending money. If your and my houses were spending money, like how many of us have. Real art. We we only buy imitation art growing up, right? So we didn't prioritize that. So we can't expect our children to become artists and get paid.
1: It. I mean, it's it's much higher on the hierarchy of needs for a society. And I always feel like the fact that I can consider art as a profession is the luxury of my generation, which simply didn't exist for such a broader, vast, uh, broader swath of society before. But only since the 90s and perhaps the since the 80s, 90s, 2000s, that prosperity has increased generally so much more that people of my generation can afford to think about such things.
0: I completely agree, man. I completely agree. But I cannot believe none of our family members ever felt that we should buy this painting because looking at it will give me joy every day. There was a time, I'm sure, all of these people, poor or not, spe- overspent on a sari. That was worn twice in 10 years. What joy was that giving you?
1: Like, so I sell so much art now and I have this conflict in my head all the time about selling in India versus selling in the US. And to some extent, I just wonder if it's maybe incumbent upon artists to pitch their products better. Like if people in India don't buy individual art to hang in their homes, it's not that it's not as simple as they should and they are not doing it. It's also about what is the relationship they have with art as a culture and as a society. And we have a lot more art and abstract art in all kinds of facets of our lives. Like right from the kind of bed sheets we used to have growing up, they would be vivid patterns and things and carpets. And, you know, so the relationship we have with art is very different from this notion of having an individual artist make you some art. So when when I talk to, when I try to pitch to people in India, or I'm, I'm even doing some work for people in India, I kind of rethink what is the, what is it that, why would that person want art from me? Why would that, because I'm also like that, like I am also from the part of the world that my mother is from, and I'm also of the same mindset that why would I pay so much for art? It's, it's there in my head. Even though I'm the person making this art, I wonder why who would, who would pay me for this. Why are they paying me money for doing this? So it's just about understanding that relationship and then trying to find how, where does art fit into this. Maybe it's not going to be on their walls. Maybe that's not what they care about. Maybe it's going to be in some other way in their life and that is something they would care about.
0: Totally. And not just to beat up in India, but if I look at my engineer friends, I was thinking how many engineer friends pay for original art or does the payment go tops at, does it max out at an Ikea print, okay. right? right. So uh, the, the responsibility definitely rests on us to educate because I think enjoying art, people aren't educated about how to enjoy art. What do you see when you look at a piece?
1: Although you will see that people in India do enjoy art when it speaks to them more directly. Like I find a lot of art in the cartoons and the comics that are made in India. And we have this tradition of political cartooning and things. So I feel like people do appreciate and understand art. It's just maybe that there is a difference in the Eastern and the Western understanding and appreciation. And when we look at art, maybe we are ourselves victims that we kind of went through the Western Approach to it and thinking of paintings that people buy and commission and then you sign your name. There's so much art in India, but nobody's name is signed at the bottom of it. It's just a very entirely different idea that the name of the artist and the individual artist is less relevant. And that's what I kind of think of as the artist versus the artisan approach. The artisan will always remain nameless. So uh, I have an ending question, which is a question that I ask all my guests. And uh, this is what it is. Can you tell me one good reason why somebody who is not an artist should pursue urban sketching in some capacity?
0: There are no non-artists. We are all researchers. Urban sketching, especially urban sketching because it puts you in the location of sketching, allows you to connect with your environment. And there is no way I can explain this in words other than somebody experiencing this. When you sit in one place and experience the smells, the wind, the sounds, you understand more of your locality. You understand the problems of local people. You actually understand that people are everywhere are the same. Because the conversation, somehow an artist painting is, is very safe. People will talk around you. They will ta- Across cultures, people have the same issues. People's values are the same. And because you show interest in other people's lives, because you are not taking a photo, you're sitting down, it is usually rewarded with reverse curiosity. People will come, sit, share their stories. There, it, there's a gratifying experience when you connect one soul to another. Just by the mere act of being there with curiosity, open curiosity, there is no benefit for me, but no benefit to you. You just want to be together.
1: Yeah, I really like what you said about uh, being there and spending time with whatever your subject might be. I, I'm often hesitant to to take photographs when I go to places because like I mean, taking photographs as as an art form, quote unquote. Like it as a photog- as a person taking a photograph, you spend maybe Uh, a few seconds at most with your subject and then you move on to the next photograph especially now that the cost of taking a photograph is so little you can delete and store multiple multiple pictures so easily you can add filters to improve them in so many different ways so as an artist you spend a lot more conscious time with your subject and it is a bigger sacrifice of your time it is a bigger commitment from your own end And that process of spending time with something is what really humanizes it for us, helps us understand it better. And is, in fact, I would say in some respects, it's even more, uh, we dignify it more, we give it more, we treat it with greater respect when we spend that time with something that we find beautiful.
0: And when you have painted outside, I'm sure people have approached you with chai in India. Why do they feel that, Right there are people taking photos of slums, but if you're in the slum painting, the reception is different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like art in itself is considered a way of finding something beautiful, whereas photography has so many more contexts to it now. It's in, it can be thought of as invasive, it can be thought of as uh, something that somebody is doing undercover and something they're trying to get away with trying to find out something that they are not supposed to find out whereas art is considered a tribute above everything else and i've had so many good experiences and say i was in the the dargah in new delhi the nizamuddin dargah in new delhi and i was just sitting there and drawing and before i knew it there were six people around me just standing over me because i was sitting on the ground and watching me and i and i asked them what are you what are you looking at cuz i was just a little unnerved at that moment and they said we're just watching your art and and they didn't disturb me in any way they didn't interrupt me in any way they were just very quietly standing over my shoulder and not even asking me to move my head and happily watching what they could see of somebody making something
0: beautiful thank you for sharing that too
1: yeah yeah so um yeah that's i guess that's that's our podcast good job (laughs) great conversation.
0: Good job to you and uh, well begun. Uh, I think this has legs. Uh, I wish you all the best. Wish us all the best. All of us.
1: Thank you for joining me in this conversation with Uma. I learned a lot of great things. But one thing that stood out for me was the unique way with which Uma uses the iPad and the Procreate app. The digital medium is so customizable now that different kinds of artists can find ways to use it that are most comfortable for them. And Uma has her own workflow with the iPad and it's very interesting for me to hear how that works for her. Follow Uma's work on Instagram. Her handle is uh, at Uma Paints that's U M A P A I N T S or you can find her website at www.umakelkar.com u m a k e l k a r.com you can also find my work on Instagram at the Sneaky Artist. or you can go to my website sneakyartist.com if you're still listening to me talk i want to thank you for staying with me on this podcast Join me in the next episode for a conversation with Donald Owen Cawley, who I'm pleased to say is a good friend that I've drawn with many, many times. Every time Donald and I see each other, we talk about everything, and this episode is also a little bit like that. I want to ask him about the ways in which he finds character and beauty in his urban surroundings, while not shying away from the ugly aspects of our world.